0: Alright, everyone, we are back. Solve for Y vlog cast number 21. We are now in our 20s. We are all grown up. We have matured. Mm -hmm. And of course, it is myself, your humble and gracious host, Christian Soto, Matt, Big Bet, Alpha Reg, Berkey himself, Arms of
1: Steel. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm great, man
0: it's a calm week now i feel like things have settled down there's new talking points that people want to hear about less possible more of uh your ascension ascending lifestyle to like being famous yeah go ahead to
1: what To famous <laughs> so, To a fame so what? What you are absolutely
0: famous now you i told you like a couple years ago i was like i think you're like top five famous and now you're like now nah. now i know for sure you're top five famous
1: For people who investigated Postle? (laughs) That's fair. You're part (laughs) of the
0: Justice League. That's what they said.
1: (laughs) I'm one of the five most recognizable people who... uh...
0: I'm sure... You know they have a list on uh, like Hendon Mob, like popularity list? You ever Mm -hmm. checked it? No. You have to be up there this week. I doubt it. Um, I I mean, it has to be like Postle, Matt Berkey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Postle's number one. There is something wrong with our system.
0: It has to be. He has to be. I'm
1: Googling it. I need to know.
0: (laughs) He has to be the most popular for sure. I need to know. Not even close. I,
1: I would. I would bet if he's on the top five, none of the other, none of the rest of us are on it. If
0: he's, uh, it's gonna be Postle, Doug Polk, nah. Matt Berkey, nah. no, yeah, no, no, yeah, man, no way, no way, no way, no way. Mm. Mike Postle, number one. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. Look, got you. Wow, it is Mike Postle. Mike Postle, Brent Kenny, Dan and Negrono never leaves the top five. And uh, Veronica Brill. There it is. Not me. All right. So let's get into one of the talking points this week. Now that things have died down, I saw a tweet from you talking about the Venetian Lucky Shot Poker Tournament. And that kind of came and went. You know, the Apostle thing kind of took over. They got a little lucky. Yeah, yeah, they got a little lucky. But the event still hasn't happened. So it's on the verge of recurring. And let's talk a little bit about that. So I do have the tournament structure, but if you want to tell people a little bit about what your idea of what the tournament is um, and why it's not good, let's, yeah. let's talk about
1: it. All right, so I don't want to spend too much time on this because uh, I don't want to give a platform to something that I think is relatively shitty. Yeah. And also there just isn't a lot to say other than don't fucking play it. Yeah. It's a 150K guarantee where for every dollar they go over the guarantee, uh, they get to keep that money. It does not go to the prize pool. That is true. I don't think there's going to be uh, too much of a risk on the Venetian's end as far as not meeting the guarantee. I just really hope that people understand like the rake trap that they're falling into. Um, You know, if they crush this guarantee and say get a $300,000 prize pool, that's just 150K off the top that the Venetian makes. Uh, You can't make that money back is just impossible. That is 50% rake or actually I guess it's 100% rake. So no, why
0: why are people, what's their pitch? Why is this incentivized for the Venetian? What, and-
1: they're, what they're selling it as is uh, an opportunity to get lucky. So I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what they have is a drawing of some sort or some other sort of yeah. contest where they're giving away cash prizes. Correct. So I think that you can, I think by playing the event, you get entered into some sort of lottery where you can win upwards of like 50K um, through sheer chance and you know that's great but why would you contribute to a tournament prize pool in order to have you know a, a couple dollars worth of equity in this right. lottery right
0: yeah do you think that this is something that if successful will become adopted in
1: other venues
0: cuz that's i think the fear of the i community. mean
1: sadly like that's that's always been the casino's uh motive right is how to separate the uneducated from their dollars yeah that's their business yeah and i mean employing a high tax is the easiest way to do it
0: yeah i mean i hope that people don't show up i obviously hope that you know
1: we hope that though when they put the bad beat in place and started taking seven dollars on a flop and still get more two five action than most most casinos in town
0: That is true. The problem is,
1: is that they're appealing to uneducated people who aren't necessarily a big part of the community.
0: But is that a thing? Is that, that's always been a, one of the concepts now, like this whole thing, when we speak about rake, speak about, you know, one of the things that I heard even on the recent Brent Kenny podcast with Joe Ingram was like, yeah, you know, like we have to figure out a new rake structure where like the the winning players are giving a little bit back and like, they're getting well, they
1: were speaking more so to the Stars situation where right. they said it's okay to raise rake as long as it's going back to the losing players.
0: Right. So a lot of, you know, I think a lot of venues are trying to find different avenues of potentially increasing rake and finding a way to give it back. Maybe this is one of them. I guess I'm trying to play the, the other side of Venetian here. Obviously, Venetian doesn't have a historical track record of like looking out for the players, but mm-hmm. maybe this is an attempt of saying, okay, well... We'll increase the rake for these winners and maybe, you know, baseball. You won't win every single tournament at Venetian and we'll give something back to but, these
1: guys. Right. But like we don't know what percentage of that rake will be going to the to the prizes. Yeah. Of these giveaways. Um, they could just be skinning the field alive. Mm. So let's say that throughout. I don't even know how many events like this they are running. Let's say it's just the one mm. and they raise 150K extra. So they get double the, the guaranteed prize pool. Yeah. Uh, let's say they put a hundred of that back into the drawings. That's still an extra 50 K in rake Yeah, that they just taxed on a $300 buy-in.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, our doors are always open. If Tommy does want to come here and talk to us and kind of explain why this is a good idea in comparison, because they have a successful series already, mm-hmm. like the extravaganza series that they run. I think it's four times a year. It's a major thing in town. I don't have, yeah. I'm not sure why they want to change. I think there's just pressure from the top. Mm. There
1: has to be, right? Um, cause like in that example that I just gave, you're talking about them taking an extra 450 buy ins out of the prize pool. Yeah, that's why. Um, and redistributing 300 of it, but they're still pocketing an extra 150 buy ins. You can't replace those kinds of numbers. Yeah. Like at some point, you just won't find 450 customers. So you're, you're kind of just like crippling. The, the ecosystem in a way that uh, makes it really hard to rebound. But if they're on a smash and ga- grab type program where all they really care about is maximizing their room's profits until they shut down, then this is fine. And we think that that's similar to like what Starz's trajectory was until they sold. That makes a lot of
0: sense. Um, all right, let's move into a different series that has begun this week. WSOP Europe, I want to talk a couple different things. So first thing, Dan Shack wrote a tweet today. Does anyone else think that WSOP is tarnishing the brand by having these WSOP Europe bracelet events like the 2508 game that would get 500 runners in Vegas giving away a bracelet to now A 50-man field with huge influence on player of the year.
1: Man, I love Dan, but he's just always like, I don't want to say whining, but he's whining a lot. For a billionaire, (laughs) he has a lot of fucking gripes. Hey, I mean, I'm so tired of the tarnishing the brand argument when it comes to World Series events. Like we get the biggest tournament field of all time and it's tarnishing the brand. Mm -hmm. We take it over to Europe and it's tarnishing the brand. We do it in Australia and it's tarnishing the brand. But a 50-man field getting a bracelet. Who gives a shit? Mm. There was a 200-man or 120-man online field that got a bracelet Mm -hmm. tarnishing the brand. Like why does it tarnish the brand exactly? The argument is the World Series, the bracelet is
0: a meaningful thing. It is not some. It's a coveted item for players. Is a coveted item for recreational players. It's something that you can say you've made it in sure. a way. When in wait, the,
1: wait first. Who do you think it's more coveted for, pros or Rex?
0: Well, I think it's more coveted for
1: Rex. It's not even close. I think
0: pros still want a bracelet. Okay.
1: Going down that path. Okay. Is Daniel Negreanu in Europe right now? yes is phil Helmuth in europe right now yes is odb in europe right now yes are these guys top tier pros yes okay what are we tarnishing exactly okay these guys are there chasing a player of the year race that is absolutely fundamentally meaningless they get nothing right they get a pat on the back and a banner in the rio the legacy sure right so it's tarnished
0: Let's say it was this thing was close. Let's say let's say this thing was close, right? Sure. And it is right now, right? And let's say that the winning event was a 50 man field 2500 event. It feels as if that shouldn't be the differentiating factor right now.
1: But why? They they battled it out for an entire summer. They all have the opportunity to play this 50 man tournament. Right. Where I agree with you is whenever it's like the 250k that separates the winner from the loser. They didn't include that this year. Which is great. But only because it was a late late
0: uh, addition to the schedule.
1: Even if they had included it, as much as I think that that becomes a little problem problematic, it's still, if given notice, is a part of the chase. Like, nobody's going to say, hey, we shouldn't include 10Ks because this guy who's crushing the 1500 level can't afford to play. Have we just
0: lost this allure then? If it's... If it's because that's so. There has a to be, Do I want a
1: bracelet? Yeah. Yes, of course. Me too. Yeah. Okay. No. In my career, they've given away like a hundred and twenty-five bracelets. Or, but, or sorry, but once a bracelet uh, doesn't a, a thousand to twelve hundred bracelets. But
0: once a bracelet doesn't become uh, a rarity, it be loses its legacy. It's
1: never a rarity. It when, hasn't been a rarity okay, since two thousand and one. When you
0: began your your career, there was a lot less bracelets afforded sure. awarded a year now there's plentiful like maybe three less than double
1: no oh there was there was certainly 30 plus events when i first started
0: okay we're gonna have
1: to look this one up
0: let's okay, look we, we're gonna need a researcher here you know <laughs> all right so my first world
1: series was in 2006 but i started playing in 2003 okay I would, let's look. i would bet 2003, 2003 had at least 20 events there
0: was 90 there's 90 bracelet events this year
1: there was 36 in 2003
0: Okay, so 90. There was 90 this
1: year. Okay. That's a lot. But this year is up like 30% from last year where there was like... This was only the
0: summer too. So now we include a little bit of this. uh, Sure. You know, we're looking at maybe like 100.
1: Okay, great. So that's 3X. And there are 75 or 8,000 people playing the main event that all won a bracelet. So that means... I'm with you, man. I'm not saying that... That means it's not that, a thing that
0: matters, but
1: that means one tenth of a percent of people are gonna vie for a bracelet. There was
0: fi- there has to be a number where it where it's like okay,
1: there isn't just the more bracelets that come to be or the or the the more accessible they are to acquire, just makes the number that you acquire more important.
0: Well, yeah, of course. I mean,
1: right? Like this is like this is like talking about uh, chasing the home run record in baseball mm. as. Hitters became bigger, faster, stronger, and more importantly, like the PED era and everything else. People want to throw an asterisk up and say, like, oh, it was tarnished and everything else. It's like, well, was it? Or are athletes in 2019 just far superior to athletes in 1952?
0: Yes, but we don't see... Like, the PED era still happened. Right, but the
1: pitchers were also on PEDs, Mm -hmm. and home runs are still astronomically high now compared to a hundred years ago or the dead ball era or whatever the case may be. And if you look sports wide records are constantly broken, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, there are some greats that made unattainable ones, at least in the short run. DiMaggio's streak is unlikely to be broken anytime soon. Cal Ripken's uh, Iron Man streak might not be broken anytime soon. But the thing is, is at some point the game itself will evolve in such a way like, that, like for instance, baseball, Uh, Bonds' home run record may not even be safe now with the launch angle and the implied value of hitting a home run now versus singles going drastically up. Like as data improves, as the evolution of the game evolves, um, we're just going to see more incentive to shatter things like this. And you're going to see less incentive to break a record like Cal Ripken's uh, consecutive game streak because now it's all about health, not necessarily... Uh, getting out there and grinding day in and day out.
0: I'm a fan of the World Series of Poker Europe because I'm on it, you know?
1: Sure. By comparison, there are very few WPTs.
0: Yeah, right? that's why the WPTs are coveted.
1: I don't think they're any more coveted than a bracelet.
0: I They're not more coveted than a bracelet today because the bracelet still remains with that allure. But WPT titles are very like prestigious
1: at this point. I wouldn't give prestige to either one of them. I mean, and that's not a shot at either brand. It's just, it's it's the pulse of the community right now. High rollers are what are highly regarded, right? Yeah. None of the people in the top 10, you, I, I don't even know if you would know if they're a WPT champ or not. Mm. You would know if they have a bracelet or not, though. Mm. Trophies aren't worth anything. I mean, look at a guy but like Mercy
0: But that's the thing. Like, we we're trying to develop characters. We're trying to develop storylines. This is what we need in the game to grow the game. And then, but for that to happen, we need these like things, like these these things but that are It needs to be more than prizes. a one
1: It needs to be there needs to be coordination, right? The WPT needs to be a league, not a tour. Mm. the The WSOP needs to uh, be a festival, not just uh, you know, for lack of better terminology, a business. Mm-hmm. Right, like at the end of the day, they're they're still a corporation, and they're certainly worried about the bottom line. They're worried about attracting new players, and they do a great job of it. But if we want to get into the media side of things and growing the health of the game and creating superheroes out of your professionals and getting back to uh, the days of yore, whenever the money makers and the Scott Fishmans and the crew were were out and about flaunting in front of cameras and stuff like that, for that stuff to happen this needs to be converted into a business greater than patrons and industry that serves, mm. right? It needs to be a coordination of the two. The big thing separating the WWE from the WSOP is that the WWE, it's a business within a business, right? The, the wrestlers aren't customers, the wrestlers are talent. right? And the back of the house, the, the, the corporation, the name, the whatever you want to call it, is the entity. The customers are the viewers. Well, that's not how poker works. Mm-hmm. The 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 business side of things, the brand, the the name, that's just all uh who's in the service side of things. The customer itself is the player. Now there is no talent in accordance to how the structure works. Correct. And the viewer gets left behind because they're supposed to be the consumer, but in all regards, they're just an afterthought.
0: So this is what we need to do. This is what Wide needs I mean, to do. I mean, I
1: think this is what Poker Central is trying to do. But again, the problem is, is that they're third party, yeah. right? So it's like, at the end of the day, you can form as many partnerships as you want, but there's still a hard separation between the business entities and the, the quote-unquote consumer. Right now, the players are still the consumers across the board. Whether you're talking about Poker Central as a media outlet, Poker News as a media outlet, or uh, WSOP, WPT as branding affiliates the end of the day, there's no partnership whatsoever between the players and all of these entities.
0: So what do you think the first step is?
1: I think the margins are at the end of the day, relatively narrow. And somebody has to be willing to take a bath up front. Somebody has to be willing to say like, I'm going to operate at a deficit for five to 10 years in order to build out this massive model where I have players working for me in order to put out a consumer product. But I think the problem is that the vi- vision for the consumer product is very blurry. And because of that, you now lose the brands. Um, because ultimately, like, you know, uh, again, WPT and WSOP being the two biggest of, of the two, they're, the, they're the, the kind of like clearance houses that would be the ones to embrace all of this or that would need to embrace all this stuff and effectively develop leagues. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, and this is already kind of happening. Just due to the nature of the cost of buy-ins. That's like CFL? Like, nah, I, I mean, Triton might be the NFL, right? Like <laughs> Triton's balling right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's like there's already this segregation by buy-ins. So effectively, like Triton would probably be the best place to test all of this because it's so, it's so few moving parts because right. it, it's such a high threshold to cross already that they're dealing with very, very few um, consumers at the moment or what would eventually become talent. So, yeah, I mean, until somebody's willing to take a huge loss and try to figure out a way to turn this into something bigger, we're just going to stay status quo.
0: WSOP is in Europe currently, as we mentioned earlier. You're on the ones and twos. And the first event they decided to let me in was a $250,000 tournament, which is a little bit scary because I'm like, well, these guys maybe are better than me.
1: They're just richer, man.
0: It was uh, uh, Tuckman, Brent Hanks, and myself. It's interesting to especially at that level at least to see that the strategy that we are like kind of developing and stuff still holds true there because like a lot of times i'm like i would like say like okay i think he's gonna do this like i think he's gonna block better i think he's gonna do this and then it actually happens and that's kind of nice not only for the viewer who's like oh okay maybe you know i know what i'm talking about but like also for me like oh okay like these high level players are kind of thinking at least somewhat in the same wing wavelength as me. And that brings me to a question of, are these live streams good as it pertains to learning? So if like, because there's a lot to be said in terms of like, oh, um, you know, there's a little bit of controversy in the summer, you know, with the Nick Schulman thing of, of like, yeah. you know, but is
1: watching the best players still one of the best ways of learning? I think the commentary matters far more than the play. Okay. And I don't even think it's remotely close. Uh, I would compare this similarly to Poker Out Loud as a learning tool uh, compared to watching a live stream. Mm. If we just got six people that couldn't really articulate their thoughts or weren't thinking whenever they were taking action, yeah, there would be nothing to learn Okay. at all. And the same holds true whenever watching a stream. Even if you have the best players in the world on display, if you're not already thinking in range versus range terms, then watching them execute is going to be relatively meaningless to you unless you have a good interpreter.
0: Yeah, I think that's really what it is because everything, like as I'm watching, everything has a meaning. So like the the bet size they make is representative of, of a certain section of their range. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe that's not clear to everybody watching. So it's like when I see that bet size I'm like okay, he's not saying he has this, he's saying he has this. Right. You know, and even that little nuance is a big deal because it it's kind of a communication of like what the player
1: is trying to say. Yeah. Uh so yeah, yeah, I th- I think we talk about this a lot where um you know, the universal language worldwide is math. But uh we have a very difficult time interpreting it from numbers to actual language Mm -hmm. and a lot gets lost in that interpretation uh i I think the same holds true whenever we talk about well maybe even to a deeper level um game theory and then uh how it applies to poker you're effectively taking quantitative analysis in mathematical terms and in that mathematical language trying to then convey it into a speakable language that is riddled with jargon Mm -hmm. and and kind of like poker speak yeah and then on top of that have a conversation that is now in line with the actions that took place so we have this complete spectrum where an action happens due to math yes right the every single play made by a high level player is uh some some sort of very deeply refined calculation yes right now as the viewer your job is to interpret that calculated move, convey it into poker speak, and then from poker speak, bring it full circle and say, "This is the story that he's trying to tell." Yeah. Through the actions that he's taking, and there's a, there's a lot of points where um, you can just get lost or dilute the actual, uh, I, I guess, like teachable moment. And that's always the balance. Like the the balance for me that is really
0: difficult is getting these high-level plays, interpreting them both and understanding them because they're very good players. So Mm. I'll have to be kind of on it. Like then on top of that, not speak in such a way that's boring to the people listening in like just complete jargon as if I'm like, I'm talking to a student or something, you know? Mm. And then so that that trend, and then also making it making myself humble enough to not make it seem like I could just do that play right so those three those three things are happening simultaneously which is like really hard at least at least for me
1: there's a lot of things that you inherently understand at one level or the other either at the mathematical level or at the language level mm-hmm. uh, of what's taking place in game so there are a lot of things that you can convey through poker speak that makes perfect sense to you and would make perfect sense to somebody who thinks like you but because maybe you don't necessarily understand the the math behind it Mm -hmm. it doesn't get communicated to everyone right and vice versa there's plenty of places where you absolutely inherently understand the math but you don't have the proper words or language to interpret it Mm -hmm. and now as you're like trying, to, and I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying- I'm just saying the general the, the, job of Yeah, that, people yeah. people in, well, everybody really, like yeah. it's what hinders people from learning, right? Um, when they're trying to communicate their point, they can recognize like, okay, mathematically, I, I have to do X, Y, or Z, but I can't really communicate why that's true. And you know, ultimately, like these are the problems that I set out to solve whenever we developed this company was marrying those two points together. When we talk about having a Y-centric point of view- The whole purpose behind that is to identify the what's and the how's in the problem solving metrics and figure out a way that we can convert them into speakable language and have such inherent knowledge that it works both both directions. Now we have a purpose that we can communicate as well as a fundamental path towards achieving said purpose through the math or through the language.
0: All right, so if the people wanna listen to me, I'll be on there pretty much every single day until Halloween. Not everything will be a 250K. I don't know how I'm going to do in the short deck, but I'll be on there. So tune in. PokerGo.com. All right. That brings me into the next talking point, which is a pretty good transition to what you're saying. Bryn Kenny, number one player in the world, was on. Number one gangster. Number one gangster in the world. I like Bryn Kenny. I I appreciate the way he plays No Limit Hold'em. You know what you, I like
1: about you liking Bryn? What? Is that, that you're just young enough where, where Bryn is, he's still this like uh, unblemished hero. Yeah. Like he had some struggles, but as far as you know, he's just always been on top. I know 18-year-old Bryn from Turning Stone, <laughs> firing in the, the 2 five ten uncapped game where like, you know, I've seen this kid run up a million and run down a million in like weeks. That's the crazy part about it. I think that's what kind of... like, like There are two Brins. Oh, I see. There's like pre-Black Friday br- Brin and then like, you know, High Roller Brin. Yeah, I only met High
0: Roller Brin. This right, is why right. I don't never meet my But heroes. he's always
1: been hood. He's yeah. always been super... I, I actually wrote... One of my very first blogs that I ever wrote was for this forum called Donkey Fish Poker. And it doesn't exist anymore, but the founder was Rob Croak, the guy who created Silly Bands. Yeah, I remember. Um, and I started writing for them in like 2005, I think. And one of the very first articles that I ever wrote was uh, a trip report that I had from Turning Stone. Mm-hmm. And I remember writing in it that this 2510, so it was a two, $2, $5, $10 game, right? It was a 300 minimum buy-in, no cap. Uh, I don't know if you remember this guy, probably not, but his name is Al Crux. Okay. He went deep in the main event in like 2005 or something. Okay. Local legend. I mean, just a hero in Syracuse, New York area. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the host of the game. Okay, And because it was 18 and over, all the online crowd came. So it was like the regulars that we would often see were like, this is where I met Al Barry. It was
0: like Boosted J and those guys.
1: No, 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 Boosted J. I didn't mean till I was much older. Um, Bonimo, Bryn, Yellow Sub, Justin Schwartz, uh, Stealth Monk. Wow. Action Jeff was another kid that uh used to come he was massive sit and go grinder uh let me think doc sands this is where i first met him chrissy b this is where i first met her wow this is a legendary group um so this two five ten game would be like me sounds soft at the time it felt like <laughs> it so it was like all these online kids and they were all so rich mm-hmm. right uh and then would be mixes of like local older guys. So like Al Crux is like 45 and just in there punting. And there was a couple other punters like from my local casino that would always come up and things like that. So I wrote, I wrote this article and I said, uh, this is, this is a future Bobby game. Uh, Bobby's game. This game is the future of Bobby's room. Right. Um, and I was just like positive that this was like what the high stakes community was going to look like. Seaver may have been there too. I yeah, I mean, the game it was just like, sound, yeah, it, was, it sounds- was literally everybody who ultimately rose to high stakes. Now, some fell off. There's a bunch of I'm not naming that like just never made it. Right, right. But uh, <laughs> why I'm laughing is because Doc Sands was in the game, uh, as was Chrissy a lot. And uh, at the time, we all knew Doc Sands as Dave. He wasn't Doc Sands. Like, ah. nobody called him. Nobody called anybody by their online monikers, I don't think. Uh, so he was just Dave. But his thing was. That he would just constantly I mean we put in sessions, man. We're talking like 20 plus hours, and he would just constantly get up from the table and just start doing push-ups in the middle of the casino. No,
0: I've seen this. Oh, yeah. Brent
1: Brent was in this game. No, too. wait.
0: I've seen Doc Sands do
1: this at the win. Okay. <laughs> he still does it today. Okay. So I don't know if he knows this, but for a decade we called him push-up Dave. All right. That well, was the only thing he was referred to. Now as. he does
0: headstands at the win. I'm oh, there. Gosh. I'm there. I'm he's I'm at this table. He's at this table right behind me. Yeah. And then he just gets up and does a fucking headstand or
1: like, however that's called hands with the, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause like, I didn't realize it at the time. I almost,
0: I always want to go like
1: that. He, he, <laughs> was, he was like coming all the way from Montana. Chrissy was in, I think Chrissy was in Toronto. So she probably wasn't that far away. Um, Bryn was coming from New York. So like, you know, another four hours we were coming from Pennsylvania. It was like six hour drive. Mm-hmm. Everybody was just like coming for this uh, empire state championship every single year. I think it was twice a year. And we just get massive. And it was like. That's crazy. Honestly, it was like what PCA ultimately evolved into.
0: Yeah. RIP PCA.
1: Uh, all right. So, want to
0: say something that was interesting as it pertains to one of the quotables of Bryn Kenny's pod with Joe Ingram. He said, I'm trying to solve for the problem of right now. And they're trying to solve for the problem that they think always exists mm-hmm. as it pertains to his poker strategy.
1: Yeah. I like that. Uh, it's actually a pretty deep line that deserves a little bit of dissection. Um, So effectively what he's trying to say is that he's making real-time decisions based upon all of the variables that are confronted to him. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to solve for the general case with a problem that's never... uh, General. Well, not only that, but like uh, with effectively a problem that persists. Mm. So the way he views poker, and I really like this, is that each problem is unique. It'll have properties of other problems similar that you've solved. Right. But each and every single spot that you find yourself in is unique to the last. Where what he's basically saying about the, um, I don't even know what to label them. The solver community. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say without sounding insulting because I don't mean to be. I mean them no disrespect. It's just they have a different approach. Yeah. Uh, so let's call them the analytics community. I think that's the best approach, right? Because they're very data driven. They're they're making quantitative decisions based on very large numbers of simulations and, okay. and extrapolations, right? So what Bryn's basically saying is that he has a strong enough fundamental understanding of the principles that drive decision making in game that he will approach each problem set uniquely and rely upon those principles in order to arrive at a solution. Mm. And oftentimes that'll lead him taking um, a contrarian approach compared to what the the analytics community would say is perfect or correct or or whatever you want to call it. And what, what they're doing is they're solving for the general case. Yes. So in that instance, they're batching problem sets. And they're basically saying like, well, this problem looks similar to another problem. So let's lump them all together and solve for the average case. And that's great if you can uh, distill the game down to a, a solvable point. But in essence, we haven't. Um, so that that poses problem number one. Uh, number two is that could be overcome if like Bryn, you have this fundamental uh, skill set, which is definitely true of the top, mm-hmm. right? The best of the best in the world definitely know everything that Bryn knows. There, there's no... There's no real separation there. I'm not
0: sure, man. I'm there might fight. be an execution. I'm going to fight for Bryn's side. I don't think that Bryn and Christoph Vogel saying view the game at all similarly. I don't think they view
1: the game similarly. I think they know the same principles.
0: I think that in terms of like whatever live exploitative things, I don't think Christoph even opens that door.
1: I agree, but I don't think that that's uh. I don't. Think you that don't that's, think that's a principle? Well, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's demonstrative of a scope of knowledge I, I think it's it's where the the path diverges between a unique specific problem versus a batched group of problems effectively like we still arrive at the same two doors right the only difference is that when Bryn finds himself in a spot he's literally going to solve for that spot given that positional dynamic versus that specific opponent um with the stack depth that they're sitting at christoph will extrapolate He'll say, "Okay, I've studied a bunch of sims or a number of sims that uh, represent this problem in some capacity." Correct. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna solve for the average case. So because they're coming from two very um, studied positions, just two different studied positions. One's more kinesthetic. One's more analytic. Um, they're still gonna arrive at pretty good solution sets. Where this deteriorates is when you get players who aren't as talented as Kristoff, right? Now, they don't necessarily have that same uh, set of principles built up, and you don't necessarily uh, derive them just from reading a bunch of data. Mm -hmm. And this is where Polk and I kind of had friction. He was basically saying that, like, if you hand somebody a strategy and just say, implement this, they'll learn and they'll learn why each play works. right? And I was kind of pushing back saying like, that's not true. I agree. Uh, I I think it's less likely that the general case, people reverse engineer problems like that. I think in unique senses that happens. I think Bryn's very good at that. I think I'm very good at that. I think Nick Howard's very good at that. I think you're very good at that. But I don't think we represent the general case. Well, yeah. Which is why I think population gravitates towards, I need answers.
0: That makes sense. What are your thoughts in terms of like he said one more thing in terms of like how he studies the game is more he just kind of thinks like he just like sits there and like thinks about the game. Not necessarily with like a solver, not necessarily with hand histories, but just like thinks like, OK, like this is the problem that happened today. How could I have done this better? Like what
1: if I did this? How does he react, et
0: cetera? Not necessarily like what the modern strategy
1: is. Well, he spoke. A little bit more specifically than that. And it really resonated resonated with me um, because this has always been uh, kind of my philosophy and approach. Um, he basically said that like what he'll do is he'll spend a lot of time thinking deeply and critically about what the proper strategy, counter strategy should be mm-hmm. for uh, certain game dynamics. Yeah. And not in a minute way, but in a simplistic way or uh, I guess in a in a holistic way is a better, better descriptor. So if your opponent is, if their tendencies lie in this particular framework, then what counter strategy can we employ that could potentially lead them to mistakes? So this was a lot easier in, in the past because people had less of a framework to operate off of. They had less construction. So we could easily identify when they were overdoing something. This opponent over three bets therefore I'm going to raise in a more polar manner and I might work in a limp range. This opponent under three bets, therefore I'm gonna raise wider. Um, we, could, we could simply see those things and yeah. observe and be very good at it. So Bryn's approach becomes a lot more difficult now that people are a lot more in line. But we still have a general sense for where triggers are pulled, mm-hmm. right? So uh, if we go back to like how we studied for the super high Roller Bowl in 2016, we could still pick up on some trend, uh, on some like, I guess, trend lines, if you will, where when when faced with a flop c bet of thirty three percent, the expectation was almost never a double barrel, so it was either bet check, or it was bet bet bet. Correct. And those were really the only two lines being employed. Right. So the way that we would split was we would just massively overfold the turn. Mm-hmm. and put them in negative EV river spot. Correct. And it worked really well. Yeah. And that's just a matter of You're observation. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, that's just a <laughs> matter of observation and then thinking critically about like, what are the common strategies employed and what are the counter strategies? And I think that even though it's a little tougher now because strategies are more protected, Bryn can do this and do this well, just because at the end of the day, people are still mimicking, especially in such a tight niche environment or tight knit environment, Right. There's still going to be strategy leaders or thought leaders in that little tiny community. And then there's gonna be this mimicking effect that takes place thereafter. Yeah. So if Bryn can just spot like who the mimickers are and recognize like where the mimicking process goes wrong because they don't know what the the thought leader knows, he immediately has an exploit. Yeah. He immediately has a counter strategy.
0: He says he could tell if the person's lying.
1: And it's, we all say that as poker players.
0: I mean, he said it though. He's like He's like, I just look at him, man. Like, I just look at him and I know. Like, I, I bet I could lie to Bryn. All right. Well, <laughs> we have a bet. We have a bet. We do have a bet. Yeah. You and Bryn. Nah.
1: Nah. We have a bet.
0: I'm trying to get through this 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 course. And now you want to divert me. But go ahead. Go ahead.
1: All right. So I went and got uh, my biometrics measured today. Nice. Got my body fat measured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my basal metabolic rate. So effectively like, what my fasted metabolic rate is. In order to keep me alive, um, lost five percent body fat, and my metabolism went from slow to normal. That's cool. Good things. Yeah. Um, it was over a three-year period, however.
0: Yeah, but you didn't know when that when those switches. Occurred.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So with that being said, I've been I've been uh, goading you with this for a while. I said that I thought I could lose half my body fat before you. Yeah. I'm less confident because I'm I'm a little lower than I thought I was. I'm 18. I thought I was closer to 20. And I know that doesn't seem like a big difference.
0: No, that those last 2 is big.
1: Sub 10 is is yeah. way different than 10. Yeah. Um but you get you got a little little swag in your step. You said that you guarantee you're a huge favorite.
0: Yeah, I think we uh you wanted to give me 7 to 1 or something crazy.
1: All right. So where this conversation ended up going was not me versus you any longer, mm. but just whether or not you could do it. Yeah. And I think you're a huge dog. I said, I think uh, the closer to 35% body fat you are, mm-hmm. the more the proper odds are probably like seven and a half to one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more above 35% you are, the, the more I think that like, you're maybe 20, 25% to make it. So mm-hmm. you're going to get tested. How, how, much, how,
0: much, how much is this bet?
1: How much do you want to bet?
0: I don't know. It has to be large.
1: It has to be large. You're getting laid <laughs> massive odds. I will
0: do this bet for $5,000 um,
1: on my side. I, I would bet you. So if you're above 35%, I'll lay you 5 to 1 at 5K.
0: Why are you trying to go broke, man?
1: Why are you trying? Why are, you try, why are you trying
0: to go broke, man? Please. Why are you trying to shoot yourself in the foot?
1: i'll be an old first of all we have to put a timeline on it otherwise i'll just never get to collect
0: you know how much money you know how much i like money
1: i don't know i know how much (laughs) you like sonic
0: i like sonic but i like money
1: we're (laughs) gonna find out uh so we have to put a timeline on it we don't have to do it right now but we definitely and Mm. that should obviously sway the odds if it's five years you're gonna get way worse price well yeah i mean if it's one year but
0: then i also age so that kind of evens it out
1: you're 30. yeah but still I lost 5% between 34 and 37. I don't think you're you're sweating it too much. All right. Well, but yeah, I'll do 5k.
0: All right, man. This guy's crazy. Well, you all let me know what you think how what are the odds you want to invest, you want to take more money? That's fine. And if they want to take your side, that's fine. I'll probably bet 10k. <laughs> I'll probably bet I might bet pretty big. I don't know. I, if the community can escrow, I I will, I will take more money. I think
1: you can get action. I hope so. Maybe not at seven and a half to one. I think I'm being a little generous there. But I also think that like, you know, if you come in at like 34%, uh, I think you getting to 17 is going to be way harder than you could ever imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, just don't eat.
1: Nah. Yeah. That'll get you to 25.
0: Nah. Then I won't eat again. No, nah, You'll be dead. No, nah, I won't <laughs> die. I won't die. There's, there's someone that fasted for a year.
1: That's fine. That's fine. At some point
0: you just die or make money. That's how it is. You know? All right. So the next talking point is Jay Carver's deal in terms of streaming Thursday night NFL football games on the Run It Up platform. This was reported by Poker Central earlier this week after Jay Carver was on their podcast, uh, after they had the whole like run it up, uh, week okay. on Poker After Dark. Yep. So Jay Carver is scheduled to stream five games beginning on Week Ten: Oakland Raiders versus Chargers, Steelers versus Browns, Texans versus Colts, Bears versus Cowboys,
1: Ravens, Jets. And he's doing commentary.
0: Mm-hmm. It's it's.
1: Are there any are there any details for this deal?
0: Not much, except that Carver has said he's going to brush up on his NFL uh, insights because he doesn't know much. But okay, effectively, that, it's going to be streaming on I his platform. I this is
1: mostly to incentivize sports bets.
0: I assume he has a big sports betting audience, so I see why the NFL would be intrigued in like beginning to open that platform up. Uh,
1: I and just wonder if they gave permission or if they actually struck a deal. That's interesting. I, Carver did not release those statements, yeah, but I assume that difference. they're not. He's not doing it for free. So I mean, he'd be incentivized to. That's pretty massive if he can. Mm -hmm. you know bring uh i mean think about what that think about the implications there Mm -hmm. they're basically saying like we'll allow you to compete with nfl network and i think it's nbc Mm -hmm. that do the thursday night games we'll allow you to be a third party competitor i mean that's that seems like a really big deal those networks pay big dollars so i think what
0: happened is that twitch and the nfl struck a deal and then Twitch okay assigned that's way assigned way, way Carver way
1: okay 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 um, okay if that's I mean Carver is still incentivized to do it for free but I imagine that he also has a partnership with Twitch where they're they're probably working something
0: out yeah for sure I mean we're not trying to count Carver's money like do your thing young boy
1: <laughs> yeah sure
0: but how how does this affect like the transition like we're seeing. Someone move from poker to mainstream commentary now. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal. This is not poker. You've you've elevated yourself through the stratosphere now. This is NFL. This is like the American way. This is not even like yeah. this is huge.
1: Yeah, um, he
0: will be the number one in hendeman popularity. Take you down to eleven.
1: I like eleven. That's my favorite number.
0: All right. Well, twelve.
1: Um, yeah. Oh, no, 12. I, I think like I think Jason's vision is really strong. Um, I, I've never really been able to see the path to bringing it to fruition, but I don't think, I don't think I need to, or anybody else, because it's one of those things where once you start with a broad vision, like what he had, where, you know, his, his idea was figuring out the best way to utilize the Twitch platform in order to both propel himself.
0: A platform. This is interesting because yeah. he he tested multiple platforms. Right, right,
1: right, right. Twitch was the most up and coming. And honestly, I think that uh, if he was, I don't know, 18 months later, all this would be on YouTube. Well, he was on YouTube before. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But he was premature. YouTube, YouTube kind of struck after Twitch, mm-hmm. right? YouTube Live came years after Twitch was already popular. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Gaming is still much more popular on Twitch than anywhere else. But we haven't really seen how the bridge is gonna connect between poker and gaming yet. Um and I don't know that Jake Carver Jake Carver seems to be leaning more into sports than he would be in the esports side of things.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I think this is gonna be really interesting, even seeing someone that I'm used to hearing as it pertains to poker now in a different avenue of sports, which is huge. I think that's a really big deal and I hope he does well, you know, get your money, young man.
1: Yeah, I think I think the real unique thing is how different the audience will be compared to uh like what NFL Network would, would get on a Thursday night. So Jay Carver kind of gets to be himself and not have to bend into the mold of a Troy Aikman or a Tony Romo or some other analyst, right? Yeah. He just kind of gets to be the the sports better doing commentary on the Thursday night game. So he can take that angle, which is pretty liberating, mm-hmm. uh, especially given like how wrong a lot of the analytics are When it comes to football, you know, we won't have to suffer through a fourth and one play where the analyst and the color are debating on whether or not it's a punt or uh, a field goal opportunity when he can just be like, this is a layup, go for it spot.
0: Let me ask you something about uh, kind of this role of color analysts. Like I feel like Daniel Grano had a poll the other day about commentary and he was trying to say like there's so many different roles in commentary mm-hmm. and most people don't even know what the difference between uh Stapes and Tuckman and Shulman and Ali like all these people are actually different um as it pertains to their roles.
1: Well the irony is that they're I I thought you were trying to lump them all together as like what they do, but that even that spectrum is very different. That's what I'm trying to say. So Stapes works with um I can't remember his name on the EPT. Uh, they mostly do a lot of the EPTs and the stars events. I know who like, it is. Uh, I forget his name too. Yeah, uh, he's British. But he's very good. They're a great, yeah. great duo. And they
0: have like a back, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that they have someone
1: like in the ear kind of talking their little bit strategy. Yeah. Their strategy. So in that particular pairing, there isn't technically an analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, Stapes is more like color and uh i i feel i'm embarrassed that i don't know the other guy's name harrington, harrington? is his name i don't think so i forget um okay. but anyway he his his main role is to call the action yes right so it's 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 a lighter version of commentary and sometimes they'll get like lex in there who actually become right the the strategy side of things um uh, but yeah so you know effectively like in any given broadcast booth what what is 100 necessary is somebody to call the action. Mm-hmm. Now, quite often, that's going to be a color commentary guy. Yeah. And what they mean by color commentary is just effectively somebody who's going to um, g- provide color to to what you're watching, right? They're, they're going to give you uh, a non-boring description of what's taking place on screen. Yeah. Now, sometimes, like in the instance of like Lawn and Norm, they both, in essence, are color commentators. But long's job is specifically to call the action norm's job is specifically to hit the punchline yeah you know and in recent years they actually brought in an analyst right uh like now antonio so. right yeah. now the analyst role by default kind of fell to norm but the way he analyzed was just kind of through jokes right yeah. it wasn't like high level analysis because in the early 2000s that wasn't necessary and they're great for that reason um as you start to look at some of the newer pairings, like when you're talking about Ali and Shulman, yes. uh, what you'll often find, and you, know, you can lump Tuckman into this, I would lump you into this, uh, and I think Brent is probably another good uh, person to, to exemplify this, is they can play both roles. So, um, you know, specifically like you and Brent and even Ali to a, a pretty big degree, uh, you're able to be both color and analyst at the same time if for no other reason, then you have a lot of playing experience. Right. Now, there's going to be a, a sliding scale there. Uh, no offense to Ali, but I think you're going to do a better job analyzing than he would. Right. And uh, no offense to right. you, but I think he's going to do a much better job at color of than you. Course, would. Of course. Of um, course. But, you know, the reason why that versatility is fantastic is because it allows you uh, al- or allows the producers a lot of options. So they can run Ali out there by himself at a poker after dark. And, and they have. Right, and yeah. they and a lot of times they should. It, it's a great product with just one commentator because the table talk does tend to be a little bit more on the interesting side. Now, whenever you get into a high roller scenario, Ali would be drowning and not because you know he's not capable, but more so just because there's nothing else to rely on. Yes. When you're flying solo like that, you need something in the environment to like, get a breath in right mm. that's where you insert analysts like nick yeah. right and you know there, there's a short list of people who i think do a really great job of fulfilling the analyst role yeah and and you know to call them one trick pony is unfair but like that's their specialty yeah so a guy like shulman is strictly an analyst For and sure. should never be anything else and he's the fucking best at it yeah absolutely right? and i think there are a lot of other people who fall under that skill set um, I think Daniel is a good analyst. I think uh, Olivia Biscay was a really great analyst.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It, um, I'm, you know, going back, like, I'm glad I got the opportunity and I'm, I'm very thankful for, for PokerGo giving me that shot. But yeah, it's interesting to see how there's just different roles and how people just lump them all together. But they're all very different, you know, and that I think that becomes like a really big thing. Um, all right. So, you're now number 10 in popularity. We'll see how you are next week. I think okay. you're go- I think you're going up. I think you're going up. That's what I think. Postle's over, man. Possle's over, which Postle's means- over.
1: I didn't win no tournaments.
0: Yeah, but like I feel as if you're becoming like the face of
1: of poker. I don't know where you're getting this nonsense. I told from. you this 5 years ago and it's becoming more and more you can't true Can't read every a handful day. of YouTube comments and all of a sudden think that we got the world by the balls.
0: I think that, you know, you and Doug Polk are friends now. He is going to leave the game. The game, you know, the old guard is not talking anymore. It just leaves you. Batman. <laughs> that's, that's that's who you are. You're, you're fucking Batman of poker. You, you either die you know? a hero or live long enough to become a hero. Yeah, an and during the day you run a business and at night you go fuck people up. <laughs> That's, that's what you're doing. That's it. You, you have that role. You're mm-hmm. fucking Batman.
1: I'm going to have to get to that 9%. All right, well, all right. Well,
0: I hope you all enjoyed Vlogcast number 21. Subscribe, like. You know, we don't do this for free, even though we haven't charged you yet. Uh, with that said, we're out of here.